Father, this morning that our sins, when forgiven by you, are forever washed away. You remove them as far as the east is from the west. You remember them no more. And we are able to stand before you today with righteousness that's been given to us because you've washed our sins away. How thankful we are for that. Help us now as we open up your word and turn our attention to what you've written. Help us to respond to you in worship as a result of what you've done in our lives. And it's in your holy, precious name we pray, amen and amen. It's good to see you here this morning. I will admit I was a little bit taken aback. I had gotten a text earlier this morning asking me if I was uh, still preaching today. And I thought, well, unless the deacons have met covertly, uh, I think I am. And then I walked in and saw Miss Chris Holly sitting in my spot and thought, maybe she's preaching today. Uh, and I got doubly worried, but she let me come on up here. So I guess I am the one preaching, which is good because I prepared a sermon, looked online all night last night to find a sermon, and I found one. So let's look at Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9, we are wrapping up very quickly this series through Esther. We will finish this series next Sunday. This is next to last message that we'll have from our series through Esther about how Jesus is better. And today we're going to look at the idea about how Jesus is a better reversal. There have been a remarkable number of reversals that have occurred throughout the book of Esther in the story of Esther up until this point. Most notably what occurs and the biggest reversal that has occurred is that there was a man by the name of Haman who issued a decree and said on this particular date all of God's people could be attacked, they could be killed, and their goods could be plundered. In a great reversal there is now a new man in charge whose name is Mordecai, who is second in command to the king, and he has reversed this order, and he has given the people of God through this law the right to defend themselves and the right to attack their attackers on a specific day. Esther chapter 9 is a chapter of great reversals, which ultimately points us to the greatest reversal of all that Jesus accomplishes for us, which is hopefully we will land this plane in a few minutes. But as we look at Esther chapter 9, I want to just draw to your attention three lessons that stick out to me about what's taking place in this text, which will get us to the point of helping us understand how Jesus is a better reversal. The first thing I want you to notice from this chapter is this truth. You don't have to die in your sin. Isn't that a wonderful truth? You don't have to die in your sin. You will die as a sinner, we all will, but you do not have to die in your sin. Look at how Esther chapter 9 opens up. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This is a major reversal. The Jews were going to die. Now they're going to live. The Jews were going to be attacked, and now they're going to defend themselves. The Jews were going to be destroyed by their enemies, and now they're going to destroy their enemies. God shows up, and everything in that one instance changes. Verse 2. 
The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus or Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all people. So this is war. The enemies of God's people have plotted. They plan to kill them, men, women, children, to plunder them. God's people are given an opportunity under this reversal decree of Mordecai to defend themselves. So they do in verse 3. All the officials, the provinces, and the satraps, and the governors, and the royal agents who helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. A warning was given through this edict from Mordecai, don't attack God's people because they can respond back and they can defend themselves. Some of the soldiers did not repent. Some of them did not relent. As a result, they attacked and 500 men were killed. Look at what it says in verse 7. And also Pershendatha and Delphin and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Ar- I don't know what book they used to get these names, good Lord. <laughs> and Aradetha and Parmashtah and Bob and Bill and Bo and, oh and Arasai and Aradai and Viazetha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed the ten sons, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Understand, you were seeing a stark contrast between two men, between Haman and between Mordecai. Haman is governed by this law called the law of the Medes and the Persians. We saw that a couple of weeks ago where basically it says that, that when a decree's been issued, it must be carried out. When you make a decision, you stick with it. You don't repent. You don't change. You don't change direction. When you're going someplace, you go all the way. There's no turning back. There's no space for repentance. Mordecai, however, is governed by a different principle. Mordecai is governed by a principle of repentance and grace. And and Mordecai, his edict does not demand that people die. His edict allows people to defend themselves, but it does not demand people's lives. But here, I want you to think, where do you fit into this? Are you governed by the law? of the Medes and the Persians? Are you governed by grace? You say, Pastor, I don't repent. When I'm wrong, I don't say I'm wrong. When I've chosen a life course, I continue, even if it's in disobedience. That's the route that Haman chose. And it's a portrait of death and hell and the wrath of God being poured out on those who remain stubbornly unrepentant. Haman does not repent. He dies publicly and shamefully, and his sons proceed forward with the plan of their father, and they follow the death of their father. See, Haman said, I'll put to death all the people of God so they'll not have a legacy and a lineage, and in a great reversal. Haman is put to death. 
and his ten sons follow him. They died in their sin. The good news today is that you don't have to die in your sin. In the grace of God, through repentance, you can be adopted by a father better than Haman. You can be brought into a family where sin is forgiven and new legacies are left. This reversal begins with humility and repentance. Haman never experienced this kind of repentance, but it doesn't have to be that way with you. You can repent and live. You can repent and and see a reversal. Our part is repentance. God's part is the reversal. You don't have to die in your sins. Here's the second truth. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. What follows next in our text it's like the Persian version of Hunger Games. <laughs> Gets a little dark. Verse 11. <clears throat> that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. I need you to understand what's happening here. And if you're just joining us today, let me give just a quick parallel what's happening. In chapter 3, evil Right-hand man Haman makes an edict. He decrees a law. And that law says on this one day we can kill God's people, men, women, and children, and we can plunder their goods. In chapter 8, Haman is off the scene. Mordecai, one of God's people, has taken his place. And Mordecai replaces Haman and issues a reverse decree and says that God's people on this one one day can defend themselves and kill those who try to harm them. The provision in both edicts was one day. Queen Esther steps forward and basically says two things. She says, well, we've killed a lot of people today. We would like an additional day to kill more people. And then she also says... Haman's ten sons are dead, but I would like to have them impaled in the yard so everyone can see. Now the big question is, is this a good thing or was this a bad thing? Was this a holy thing or was this an unholy thing? You ready? Yep. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> there, there are basically two perspectives. 
Some people say that what Esther did here is good, it's godly, it's holy, because the, the people of Haman, they were called the Agagites, they had always been the enemy of God. In fact, back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, God gave a command to his people to blot out the memory of the Agagites from under heaven. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God tells King Saul to kill all the Agagites because they seek to destroy God's people. He was either kill them or be killed by them, but he said, don't take possession of their materials. King Saul did just the opposite. He took all their stuff, but he let them live. So for over a thousand years, this conflict has existed. And Esther, some people will say that Esther was obeying a decree, an ancient decree given to King Saul who disobeyed, that she was obeying a very ancient command from the Lord. And that's a good thing. The other perspective, the other side, will say that what Esther did here was a bad, ungodly, unholy thing. To defend yourself on one day is justice, but to add this second day to go find your enemies and actively kill them is taking it a step too far. That taking the dead bodies of the ten sons of your enemy and impaling them publicly is something that crosses the line. The solution is is simply that it's hard to know exactly whether this is a holy or an unholy action because the text doesn't tell us. One of the difficulties in studying, teaching, preaching the book of Esther is that it does not interpret itself. There's no commentary on it. The text doesn't say if angels were rejoicing at this or if God was weeping over this. As a general rule, I'm kind of hesitant to draw strong conclusions when the Bible doesn't. That's a wise thing to do. When the Lord says, thus says the Lord, that's the way I want to say it. When the Lord doesn't say that, I want to be careful what I say. So my counsel to you is I've just given you a wonderful lunch discussion question. (laughs) So as you're cutting into your meat, just think back to Esther and her command. Maybe Esther got it right. Maybe she got it wrong. The truth is, either way, God does perfect work through imperfect people. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And that's good news for us. That gives us hope. You say, Pastor, I'm not perfect. Neither was Esther. Neither was Mordecai or David or Noah or Moses or Abraham or Paul or Timothy or Peter or John. The list goes on and on. We don't need to rewrite the stories so that all of God's people are the heroes and all the other people are the villains. The longing we have for a perfect, good leader and king is already fulfilled in Jesus He's the only hero. Everyone else is the villain. God uses imperfect people. So that means he can use you. So take that excuse off your list. Because you don't have to die in your sin. And you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. And the third lesson is that you don't have to have riches to be rich. You don't have to have riches 
to be rich. Look at what it says in verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands to the plunder. Haman's edict back in chapter 3 allowed the enemies of God to plunder the people. Mordecai's decree in chapter 8 provides the same legal provision for God's people. But notice this is the third time in chapter 9 that it tells us that they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. This is the beginning of the Feast of Purim. We'll look at that next week. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day of the and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the village who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. No wonder we like this chapter so much. It is festive, it's joyous, they, they, they have the legal authority to plunder and become rich, but they realize they are already rich. This is why they don't plunder the goods. They have realized that God was their treasure and that God's presence in their life was enough. He saved them. He saved their families. And that was the greatest gift they could receive. They could not get any richer than they already were. Notice that it says they rejoiced. They throw a party to celebrate the fact that they didn't get rich. Because they already had everything that they needed. That's how reversals work. Our repentance plus reversals from God will always equal rejoicing. These people aren't richer, but they have more joy and happiness than ever before. They're not more secure in their earthly possessions, but they are more certain of an eternal security. You see, this is a chapter over and over and over again that shows us reversals. Think back to what we have learned so far. Mordecai was powerless and Haman was powerful. In a great reversal, Haman became powerless and Mordecai became powerful. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai and be paraded as a king, but in a great reversal, it was Haman who died and Mordecai who was paraded as a king. It was Haman who built gallows upon which to hang Mordecai, but in a great reversal, Haman ended up being hung on the gallows he had prepared for someone else's death. God's people were sentenced to death in the book of Esther, but in a great reversal, God's people ended up putting their enemies to death. God's people were mourning and fasting at the prospect of death, but in a great reversal, God's people are now rejoicing and feasting, not at the prospect of death, but at the prospect of life. <clears throat> My friend, that is not the end of reversals in the Bible. 
man in Genesis, the, the book of Genesis, man wanted to become like God, but in a great reversal, God became a man. The Son of God in heaven lived in riches and glory, but in a great reversal, he came to this earth to live in poverty and humility. We were destined to die for our sins, but in a great reversal, God died in our place for our sins. We are without righteousness and with sin. In a great reversal, Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. Our sin has brought us death, but in a great reversal, Jesus' death has brought us life. Jesus was died, and he buried, and in a great reversal, he rose to defeat death, and he lives again. Jesus returned to heaven, but in a great reversal, he's coming back to reverse every curse. For those of you here today who are children of God, your reversal is guaranteed. Jesus will return, and the world that rejected him will, in a great reversal, be ruled by him. And on that great day, that day of ultimate, eternal, forever perfect reversal, the sick will be made well by Jesus. The lame will run to Jesus. The blind will see Jesus. The deaf will hear Jesus. The hungry will dine with Jesus. The weeping will be comforted by Jesus. The poor will be rich with Jesus. The humble will be raised up with Jesus. The victims will get justice with Jesus. And the dead will rise to be with Jesus. You talk about a reversal. Jesus, as great as this reversal is in Esther chapter 9, it has nothing on the reversal that awaits the people of God. Does that kind of reversal await you? Because if that's not your eternity, if that's not your future, there's also another reversal that's coming. But it's not one that's good. You reverse from this world to a world without God, without Jesus. Now, you don't have to have that experience in your life. You can have a guaranteed day of a great reversal if you make Jesus your Lord. Would you bow with me this morning? I'm going to pray in just a second. And after I pray, we're going to stand and sing. This is going to be a time of commitment for you. This altar is going to be open. If you need to come pray, you can come pray. If you realized during the course of our time today that you need to make Jesus your Lord. This is an opportunity to make Jesus your Lord. Right where you are from your pew to cry out to him, to pray, ask him to save you, confessing your sins and being repentant of them. If you've got questions about that or want to know more about what it means to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, just come let me know and, and we'll get you with someone right here this morning before you leave today who can share with you the source of the greatest reversal when Jesus took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. Father, my prayer today is that each person in this room has experienced that reversal. 
but I know that there may be some here who have not. So would your Holy Spirit, as he does the work of conviction, I pray that that person in this room who has yet to place their faith in you would today stop trusting in their sin and instead trust in the Savior. That they would stop trusting in doing good things and they would begin to trust in a good, perfect Savior. And Father, for those of us who made that decision, whether it was a week ago or a year ago or 10 years ago or, or 60 years ago, I pray that we would live in light of this reversal, that we would live as children of God, that when people look at our lives, they can see the change that you've made. We give this time to you and pray that you'd have your will in your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray.